you follow sports at all, I'm sure you're familiar with the recent labor dispute um, between the National Football League and their officials. And several months ago, the league locked out the officials because of this labor dispute. It was a dispute about money and about retirement benefits and so forth. And so the, the football season began, and the, and the regular officials were locked out. And so what the NFL did is they brought in what they called replacement refs. I'll tell you, it's been absolute chaos since they did it. If you follow football at all, you know there's been all kind of trouble about these replacement refs that the NFL has been using. Uh, there have been some terribly bad calls, even affecting the very outcome of the game. There was a very prominent game last weekend, in fact, in which the call, the last call of the game, cost one team the game and gave the win to the opposing team. And so there's just been an uproar among sports fans. These replacement refs, what's the problem with it? Well, the problem seems to be that they didn't know the rules real well because sometimes they had to go back and reverse themselves on some calls that they made. And then even the calls that they were familiar with, the rules that they were familiar with, they were inconsistent in applying those rules and as I said, it was pure chaos. Well, because of all the uproar, the NFL has come to terms with their regular refs, and they're back on the job now because they had to get that solved. Rules, man, you've got to know the rules. You've got to be able to consistently apply the rules, and that's true no matter what you're doing. That's true if you're playing football. That's true if you're running a business or a school. I'll tell you, that's true in the realm of religion as well. You've got to be able to know the rules and make consistent application of the rules or it's going to be chaos. And so, uh, to, to, beginning today, we want to study some lessons that have to do with the rules of our service to God. You know, for a long time, we have used the expressions, we should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. That's a statement that reflects our attitude toward the rules of serving God. You may have also heard through the years preachers use expressions like do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. Again, that's an appeal to authority. I think more frequently we talk about book, chapter, and verse. We want to give a book, chapter, and verse. When we say something, we want to be able to go to the Bible and say, here's the scriptural reference that tells us that that's the way we ought to be doing things. Sometimes we refer to the thus saith the Lord approach to our serving God. We want to do it the way that God says. In all of that, we're pointing to the concept of Bible authority. We believe that Bible authority is so very important, and we have stressed it over and over again, but it is certainly under attack. And I want to suggest to you just some quotes that indicate how some folks associated with us are attacking this idea that we have to have rules and we have to follow the rules. For instance, at a Christian college lectureship, one man said, we are so wrapped up in commands, examples, and necessary inferences that we don't find Jesus. I'm not saying to put this aside, but the purpose of hermeneutics, that is, understanding, interpreting, and applying Scripture, is not to get the right answer on a whole series of questions. It is to find Him. In other words, the right answer is not important. And we're just way too bound up in this business of authority, commands, examples, necessary inferences. At a conference of so-called Christian scholars, one said, the truth is that, the biblical, that biblical theory cannot distill from the current text of the Bible a seamless body of doctrine. In other words, you can't go to the Scriptures and come out with a straight-line analysis of what we should be doing. 
no hermeneutical model can find consistent and widespread approval. We can't agree. It's impossible for anybody to interpret the Scripture and come to the same conclusions that others do. Another man said in a meeting of preachers, nowhere does the New Testament provide explicit scriptural basis for a restoration principle. No text explicitly states that later generations should follow the primitive church or follow it. We shouldn't even try to be like the church was in the New Testament. That's a flawed approach, he says. And again, in a book written by a fellow who identifies as a member of the Church of Christ, he said, on Pentecost, the church was not identified by name, organization, worship, or purpose. Such things at best are only secondary. A restoration of those things is no part of restoring the church. The church which the Lord built is a universal, unstructured entity which defies limiting patterns. Well, those are just a few quotes that suggest, I believe, that Bible authority is under attack. That the principles that we stated earlier... Thus saith the Lord, book, chapter, and verse. There are a lot of people. I'm not just talking about people in the denominations, the very liberal denominations. I'm talking about some brethren who are associated with churches of Christ are attacking those principles of Bible authority. And I believe it's very important for us to understand what they're saying and why they're wrong. This morning, for a few minutes, we want to examine and analyze that attack that is being made against Bible authority. Actually, this is going to be the first of a series of several lessons that I want to present along this theme. Later in the month of October, I've been asked to preach a meeting in West Virginia, and they've asked me to preach along this idea. And so as I typically do when I'm given an assignment, I try it out on you all first to see if it's going to work. This is not new material. These are not new concepts. But we do need to be reminded of them, and I think it's as valuable for us as it is for that church in West Virginia or any place else we need to be firmly rooted in our commitment to Bible authority for all we do say in practice. And so we're going to review these lessons again to make sure we're committed to these truths. Thanks for being here this morning. We appreciate you very much. We're glad that you're here. As we said earlier, it's a great Lord's Day and a wonderful privilege to be able to assemble together, to draw strength from one another, to be edified. But most of all, what a privilege to be able to join together in the worship and adoration of God. Thanks for being here. Thanks to those of you who are visiting with us. We hope you'll come back every time you have a chance to be here. All right, what are some of the attacks that are being made against this concept of rules, Bible rules, know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it? What are some of the attacks that are being made against that concept? Well, first, there are those who teach that there is no pattern for us to follow. That when we say, this is the way they did it in the New Testament, this is the pattern they followed, we should imitate their pattern, there are those who are saying there is no such pattern. For instance, at a church lectureship, one man said, are we really looking for a pattern? We've taken Acts and tried to make it a prison, a rigid pattern. I reject pattern theology. The Scripture is not a book of case law to be cited like a bunch of proof texts. I am not looking for a pattern. I am looking for a person. Talking about Jesus, obviously. Another at a study seminar said, we must overcome the tendency to read the Bible merely as a body of facts or a blueprint. We need to overcome that, he says. In other words, that's holding us back. We're being hurt by the idea that we're looking for facts in the Scripture and a blueprint to follow. That's hurting us, he says. What about that? Does that is that quite incredible to you? What if you were talking to a person who wanted to become a chef or a, a, a good cook? And this, this person who's interested in being a notable cook says, 
I'm against the idea of recipes. Ah, the idea that you have to follow set rules when you cook something, that's just holding me back. I want to be free to do as I please. Well, he can do as he pleases, but he probably won't turn out any, any dishes that are worth eating, right? Because there are rules about cooking and there are recipes to follow. As we said earlier, that's certainly true in religion as well. There's a pattern that needs to be followed. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul writes, God be thanked that ye were. He's talking about the Romans. He's writing to the Romans. He says, God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Notice right here he said that they had obeyed a form of doctrine. A footnote in the American Standard Version there where the word King James uses the word form, in the American Standard Version, the footnote actually says pattern. The word form there could be translated pattern. Paul said, I'm glad you followed the pattern that you were taught. It was a good thing. He was commending them for that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul told Timothy, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that same word for form or pattern. You hold fast to that form of sound words. Now, what I want you to see here in this verse, though, is that that is not at odds with the love which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the, some of these men that we've been quoting this morning say, well, you're trying to follow a pattern or a form. We're just trying to love Jesus. They're not at odds with one another. In other words, it's not either or. Paul says, hold fast that form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Following the pattern doesn't exclude love. Do you see that? And so neither do we. No pattern theology. That's one of the attacks that's been being made against this concept that we need to follow the rules or have Bible authority. Another attack that is being made is that some people, and it's along the same lines, some people are saying, well, were these New Testament epistles that we read, these letters that are in the New Testament, were they letters describing a law to follow or were they love letters from God to mankind? Here's what one man said at a college lectureship. He said, I deny that the New Testament is a constitution of church law. The New Testament is a collection of love letters, and one does not read love letters as law. The New Testament was never intended to be viewed as a legal brief for the church through the ages. Do you see it? He's saying the New Testament is love letters. Love letters are not written with commands and instruction. In other words, if if you've got a correspondence, let's say here's a young man and a young woman and they're courting one another. And so the young man writes a letter to the young lady and in it all he does is lay down rules that she's expected to follow, things that she's got to get done before he sees her the next time. Someone say, well, that doesn't seem like a love letter. I mean, you know, he's supposed to be writing her love letter. All he did was tell her things to do. And so they're saying, they're trying to take that analogy and say, well, here's the Lord sending a message to us. He sent us love letters. He didn't send us letters just full of commands and instructions. These should not be these these letters shouldn't be interpreted that way. It's wrong to imagine that this is a a, a system of law to be followed. Well, let's analyze that idea for a minute. When God gives rules, if God gives rules, let's, let's put it that way. If God gave rules for people to obey, would that preclude the idea that He loved us? For instance, way back in the Old Testament, in the days of Isaiah, 700 or so years before Jesus ever came to earth, in Isaiah 2, verse 3, Isaiah said, Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, think about that. The Lord's going to teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. He's going to tell us what he expects us to do, and we should comply. Does that mean God didn't love them when he said that? It, it very clearly denotes that he was going to tell them what to do and how. So that means he doesn't love them, right? God didn't love them because he was giving them a law to keep. Is that true? No, that's never been the case, right? God in his love has actually given us commands because he knows what's best for us and how it will, if we do what he says, it will protect us from all kinds of hardship and injury. In Jeremiah, there's a prophecy, famous prophecy, that's fulfilled in our time. We live in the time that Jeremiah was prophesying about. Jeremiah 31, beginning verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, now we're talking about how it would be in the new covenant. Jeremiah was prophesying of that. We now live in the times of the new covenant. But you notice that even in this new covenant, there's still an emphasis on laws. I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts. And so there was still an emphasis on rules. Does God not love people because he gives rules? Obviously, he loves us. And in that love, in fact, he gave us guidance and rules and instructions. In James chapter 1, verse 25, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Who's blessed? The one who does what God says, right? And then, in the text that Yancey read for us earlier, in 1 John chapter 2, beginning verse 3, Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. There's, there's no contradiction between God telling us what we're supposed to do and us doing it and the idea of him loving us or us loving him. Those things are all together, right? You see, how would you know that you're in him? How would you know that you love him? How could you prove that you love him? if you didn't keep the instructions that he gave. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And so, those who are teaching that we really have in the New Testament a, a compilation of love letters, and we shouldn't interpret them to mean we've got to do certain things in certain ways, they're just wrong, aren't they? That's just a wrong approach. Well, uh, still in lines with this idea that Bible authority is under attack, there are those who talk about the historical critical approach. Now, probably need some deciphering on that. What are they talking about when they talk about the historical critical approach? Well, in a Brotherhood magazine, one man said this, the Bible was written in another period and from within a culture different from Western civilization. Thus, the meaning of the text to those ancients might be quite different than for a man today. You get that? You get the idea? Even the newest parts of our Old Testament, the, the newest parts of our New Testament, even the newest parts of the Bible are really pretty old. I mean, they're on the order of 2,000 years old or thereabouts, right? They were written people who lived a long time ago. They lived in a different part of the world. They dealt with different circumstances than ours. Therefore, it's pretty, they say it's, it's, it's 
pretty shaky idea to take what was written to them and try to apply it to us. We live in a different time and in a different place. That kind of reasoning has been used to justify all sorts of things. Uh, that kind of reasoning has been used to justify the acceptance of homosexuality. We live in a different time, a different place. We're going to think about things differently. It's been used to justify things like women preachers. Uh, we live in a different time, a different place. We're going to have to do things differently. And so they're saying because the Bible was written so long ago, different people, you know, and after all, we're so far more advanced than they were. Therefore, you just can't take those words literally and apply them to us in this modern day. Well, think about that. Think about what Jesus, think about that in comparison to what Jesus said, for instance, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, beginning verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Well, part of the Great Commission was to go and teach the things that Christ had taught them. Go and teach, convert, baptize, and then continue to teach them to observe what? All things that I have commanded you. And he says, you know, even the word always is in there, right? That's not going to change. When did it change? When did the things that Christians are supposed to do and our commitment to instruct in those things, when did that change? And by what set of rules do we now conduct our worship to God? I believe that if we're honest, we can see the wisdom of God in the timelessness of His message to mankind. These critics are saying is, the Bible was written to people who lived a long time ago in a different place. And God was addressing them, but God wasn't smart enough to write a message that would be applicable to us living 2,000 years later in a different place. God, it was okay then. God did an okay job then. But He wasn't smart enough, wasn't wise enough to be able to deliver a message that could be applied by all men everywhere, anytime. God just didn't get, he, he, he couldn't do that. It wasn't possible. We believe that God did. And the idea that the Scriptures are timeless and to be applied by all men everywhere is certainly seen. I'll just give you another example here. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul was writing about the observance of the Lord's Supper, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Concerning the Lord's Supper, how long were those rules supposed to be followed? Till he comes, right? That wasn't going to change. This is a timeless message. And those who say, we've got to change with the times, and thus they are attacking the concept of authority in religion, are absolutely wrong. There are some people in, in this attack on Bible authority who are attacking the idea of the law of exclusion. Again, let's decipher this for a minute. If you understand what the law of exclusion is, we say that when the Bible is silent on the matter, we should be silent on that matter. And that silence does not authorize us to act. Those on the other side of that argument says, if the Bible doesn't say not to, we can do whatever we want. Uh, a very familiar issue in which this comes up is, for instance, in the case of instrumental music. When we talk about the fact that in the New Testament, we never read about instruments of music being used to worship God, probably the first comeback we get is someone says, well, it doesn't say not to, right? We say when God specifies what he wants, it excludes every other thing. When we have specific authority, then it excludes doing it a different way. 
But there are people who, who reject that idea and reject the rules in regards to that. Here's an example. In a sermon, a preacher said, silence may be coincidental rather than intentional. Silence is not inherently prohibitive. Rather, silence preeminently meant freedom for our restoration fathers as it should for us today. In other words, if the Bible doesn't, doesn't limit us, if the Bible doesn't say we can't do something, then we should be able to do whatever we want. That's been, a, that's been an argument uh, in religious circles for centuries. That's not a new argument. But think about it just from a practical standpoint. As we often illustrate the idea of when God specifies something, that's what he wants, he doesn't want anything else. The same is true with you. When you specify something, that's what you want. You don't want anything else. Let's say here in just a few minutes we dismiss services and we head off to a restaurant to eat. So you sit down and the waiter comes and you give him your order. And it seems like it's kind of long before he comes back with what you ordered. But then here he comes. Not just with a plate full of food, but a whole cart he's dragging along behind him. And he starts offloading onto your table all kinds of dishes. And you say, wait, 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 what is this? And he said, well, it's one of everything on our menu. He said, but I didn't ask for that. I just asked for this one item. Well, you didn't say not to. And so we're just bringing you everything. And here's your bill. It's $256. You'd, you'd say, no way, right? No way. When I told you what I wanted, that's what I wanted, and I don't want anything else. Why would we not use that same kind of logic in regards to God? But there are those who are saying, oh, we're free to do whatever we want. Silence is permissive. This idea that we're limited in silence, that silence forbids, is a wrong concept. Ask Noah about that. You know, remember in Genesis 6, the famous story of Noah building the ark. Noah said, uh, God said to Noah, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Stop right there. Well, he didn't say not to use pine or ash or oak. Didn't have to, right? He said gopher wood. Hey, you know, everybody understands Noah had to use gopher wood. I've never heard anybody who argued that point. Well, if it was true for Noah, it's true for us, right? He says, Room shalt thou make in the ark, and pitch it within and without with pitch, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of it shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and a cubit thou shalt finish it above, and the door of the ark thou shalt set inside thereof with lower second and third story shalt thou make it. That's a pretty clear blueprint if you ask me. God told Noah what he wanted, and we all agree. And in fact, I've never run into anyone who religiously, in religious discussions who would argue the point. When God told Noah what he wanted, Noah had to do it that way. Why would it be any different with us? Or ask Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, in, Luke, in Leviticus chapter 10, beginning verse 1, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. God had specified where the fire should come from for the sacrifices and the burning of incense. Apparently, he did not say, don't take it from there, but he told them where he, they should take it from. They took strange fire before the Lord. He had not given them the authority for that, and they were struck dead. Those who reject the so-called law of exclusion need to rethink their position. So what we're talking about here this morning is by different means, with different approaches, the enemies of truth are attacking the concept of Bible authority. Bible authority is under attack. And we've suggested several of the means that they do that. I want to give you one more example of what they're doing. They've, 
they are saying that we ought to emphasize the man, Jesus, and not the plan or the specifics of doctrine that are found in the Scripture. We should emphasize the man, not the plan. Now, uh, what about that? How would they state it? Here's an example from a Christian college conference. A man said, we have tended to be tech-centered rather than Christ-centered, and we will not be able to overcome our identity crisis unless we shift our focus to the person of Christ, not the Bible. We have become enamored by the written word to the point of becoming oblivious to the living word. The restoration movement has been a doctrine-exalting movement. In other words, they, that's what they say we're part of, the restoration movement. We've exalted doctrine and not, he says, rather than exalting Christ. It's been a doctrine-exalting movement rather than a Christ-exalting movement directed at the heart of the unchurched. The idea of adhering to the written word is noble, but it is fraught with as many problems as there are people viewing the word. In other words, if you try to adhere to the written word, your problem is nobody's going to read it the same and we can't get there. It's going to be impossible. That would be like saying the, the referees in a football game, there's no way they're going to be able to agree and the teams are going to be able to play by the same set of rules because everybody interprets them differently. No, that's not true, right? We want good referees that will know the rules and apply them consistently, and it's doable. Why couldn't it be true also spiritually? We believe it is. That we can read the Word and understand it and adhere to it. Uh, so this guy is saying, since trying to follow the Word is just full of so many troubles, what we need to do is just be trying to point to Jesus. Uh, don't don't become enamored with this doctrine. We've exalted doctrine too much. We just need to exalt Christ. Well, you know probably where I'm heading in Acts chapter 8 with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. We've studied that story plenty of times in the past, but an important observation from the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch is this. Philip opened his mouth, Acts 8 verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached to him Jesus and as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip preached Jesus to him. He preached the man. I want to ask you, how was it that the eunuch knew he needed to be baptized? If what Philip preached was Jesus, how did the eunuch know he needed to be baptized? Well, I'm saying there's a linkage there that, that you've got to acknowledge. You can't preach Jesus without preaching the doctrine of Christ. If you preach Jesus, truly preach Jesus, you will be preaching the doctrine of Christ, and that includes things like baptism for the remission of sins. They are, they, they are inseparable. You can't preach the man without preaching his plan. All of the things that we've suggested this morning are how some folks... Now, these, again, the quotes that we've used are from some who identify with churches of Christ. And so I hope you acknowledge that this is not just some far-off religious extremist that we're warning about, uh, this is getting closer and closer to home. We need to be aware of the threat, the danger, the attack uh, that uh, is being made against Bible authority. We're going to continue our study. We're going to review some of the very basic principles of establishing Bible authority and lessons that will follow. We appreciate your good attention for all we've had to say this morning. As we've been studying this lesson this morning, this has not been necessarily the kind of lesson that would motivate someone to become a Christian or obey the gospel. But we would never want to end an assembly without giving that opportunity. And so, this morning, if it happens to be the case with you, that you understand the truth, you know that gospel plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and you've been 
making a decision in your heart to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation. We hope you'll move forward without delay. Commit yourself to the Lord in obeying that gospel plan of salvation. We're ready to assist you in your obedience. We'd be glad to study with you more, too, if you let us know. If you're a Christian already, but you've been unfaithful to the Lord, we urge you to come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.